All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Nazita Lajavardi. She has got a new book out. She's a political scientist and attorney at Michigan State University. And her book is called Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia. Nazita, welcome to the program. Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, absolutely, no problem. So. Uh, later in this interview, I'm gonna tell you a story that is both encouraging and devastating at the same time. So you have that to look forward to. Uh, but first, let's talk about the current state of Islamophobia in America. I'll start with the most uh, general question of all time. How bad is it? <laughs> yeah, it's, pre it's pretty bad. Uh, Islamophobia is rampant. Uh, there are negative attitudes towards Muslim Americans that are important for predicting uh, policy support that harm Muslims abroad and at home. Islamophobia is also incredibly powerful in shaping drivers of hate crimes. I mean, we've seen all these anti-Semitic attacks throughout the country in recent weeks. Uh, similar things have happened to the Muslim population driven by resentment. Islamophobia also underpins, for instance, anti-Sharia laws that are being proliferated throughout state legislatures. I mean, you name it, Islamophobia is important. It affects the lives of millions of people. So it, it's horrible and um, and, and a real problem throughout the country. It, it does get comical sometimes though, in places like Oklahoma where they pass laws against Sharia law. As if Sharia law is like this close to taking over Oklahoma. Uh, I mean, but it does right. go to show you the paranoia that is set in. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. So what's driving this? Where Where is most of this fear and hatred coming from? Yeah, so I, I have, a, I have some work that's looked into what underlies feelings of resentment towards Muslims in the United States uh, with my colleague, Kasra Eskui. And what we find is actually um, old fashioned racist beliefs. So beliefs that Muslims are biologically inferior, that they are barbaric, that they are savages. These beliefs, these beliefs that they are so biologically inferior to others, especially whites in America, are really underpinning um, modern day resentment towards Muslim Americans. In terms of Sharia law, I mean, it's very interesting that you raise that. Just given that anti-Sharia laws are actually not possible to, to implement in the United States, right? Because an anti-Sharia law is really just a law that says you're not going to be adopting the laws of another uh, an, another country uh, as, as part of your state law. So yeah, duh, you know. Yeah, no, it's duh on a couple of grounds, right? <laughs> yes, no, we're not going to be adopting Saudi Arabia's laws in Oklahoma. Although if Trump had his way, maybe we would. Because uh, he's such good friends with Saudi Arabia and the dictators that run it. Uh, but also, we it says in the Constitution you cannot establish a religion. So obviously, you could not establish Islam as a religion in Oklahoma. By the way, you also can't establish Christianity in Oklahoma. They probably missed that memo. Right. Um, but uh, Nasita, this let me get welcome through. to secularism. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but secularism brought to you by the founding fathers. Uh, that 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 part <laughs> exactly. they missed in history class. Um, okay, so uh, so the story is of my family. So um, I was born uh, into a Muslim family. I'm agnostic now, uh, but um, my parents, when they first came here, uh, my dad, all the way back in the early 1960s, was actually treated wonderfully. So when he got here and he was doing a master's program, uh, a lot of people helped him uh, with open arms. Uh, all you know. Generally speaking, white Christian Americans. His professor basically gave him a car. He had great friends that he's still friends with to this day. A wealthy couple decided to take my mom and dad on a vacation for a week in Miami. What? <laughs> okay. 
And so our experience <laughs> is fascinating because this country could not have opened its arms more to us. That is why, so that's why it's a wonderful story in some sense, but it's also disheartening because of the 180 degree turn that happened since then. So there's gotta be something that drives it that has actually affected and poisoned the culture because America didn't used to be this way and we know it as a fact. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really interesting that you you use this example. I think numerous other people from the Middle East to some from Muslim backgrounds or Christian backgrounds, Zoroastrian backgrounds, and you name it, they've had similar experiences in the United States, especially pre 9 11. When they arrived to this country, a lot of them um, had experiences of integration. Uh, but I think what's really important here and something that uh, we can document, and, and well, which I've documented in some of my, my work and also in my book, is that um, prior to 9 11, especially between the 60s to 9 11, um, most of the discrimination that people from the Middle East and North Africa face was predominantly on the basis of national origin. And you might understand why that might be, right? Uh, there was a lot of laws that were being passed. There were a lot of incidents um, that pertain to country-specific individuals. So for instance, the experience of Indian Americans, given the hostage crisis, are, is very different than the experiences of Turkish Americans. And discrimination that was felt about the hostage crisis was predominantly geared towards Iranians uh, in the United States. So when discrimination occurred during that time, it was predominantly on the basis of national origin. What we see 9-11 is the development and this grouping of a newfound group, uh, Muslim Americans. And all of a sudden, groups who may not even actively identify as Muslim are being grouped into the Muslim category and are experiencing discrimination on the basis of it. So, you know, even groups, for instance, like Sikhs, they also, I mean, this is an obvious example, but they obviously are also victimized as part of um, being identified as, as Muslim or Middle Eastern. And so um, this, this processing and developing of a group is called panethnicity. Um, it's when the public and when the society in general imposes a group on you. So folks from these countries may not ever have identified as Muslim first, that may not have been their identity of choice. But over time, we have enough data to show that, especially in the news media, for instance, the mentions of Arab Americans has gone down, the mentions of Middle Eastern Americans has gone down, the mentions of even Turkish American or national origin groups has gone down. So what we really have are Muslim Americans replacing it, um, which is, it sort of raises um, an important point, which is that Individuals who frequently experienced um, integration prior to 9-11 um, are now sort of being subsumed in, in a heightened era of, of discrimination, though they may want to remain invisible. Yeah, so media is such a huge part of this because um, the largest uh, Muslim country in the world is, almost no American can answer it, it's Indonesia. Uh, and so Sikhs who are not Muslim will just get more anti-Muslim discrimination in this country than Indonesians will. And it's because of why, the media. The media says the turban is Muslim and dangerous, etc. Sikhs wear a turban, but they're not Muslim. Indonesians generally, not everyone, but overall don't wear turbans. They're not, are not identify, identifiably Muslim as you would recognize them from television reports of what is characterized as scary Muslims attacking us, right? Not just 9-11, they've been doing it to the Palestinians for decade after decade after decade. So, and, I, and I'll tell you, and one more thing before I ask a question, one of those great people that were friends with my dad and graduate students together and they've been lifelong friends, now is anti-immigrant 
even though he was the most open to immigrants earlier in his life. Why? Because he's been watching Fox News. So, yeah, do uh, not undercut the power of media consumption on shaping anti-Muslim uh, attitudes and, and also policy support. Like, it is it is amazing how we see even effects of like consumption of certain types of news, like Fox News or Breitbart, or even social media like Twitter and Facebook. A couple of colleagues and I have a paper on this. I mean, we found that even among Democrats, the the impact of, of exposure to, to this media is so important in shaping support for anti-Muslim policies. Like it, it actually more powerful than for Republicans, if you can even imagine that. Yeah, no, I can imagine it. The media does uh, mass uh, propaganda, uh, whether they intend to or not. Fox News certainly does intend to. I think the other uh, stations uh, also participate, I hope, without intent. Um, so. Uh, but I do want to go to one other thing, and I don't know, you know, to what degree you got information on this. But the other group that I noticed has been doing a ton of Muslim propaganda, and it's even more disheartening to me is a group that I belong to, agnostics and atheists. So I wrongly believe that atheists might be more rational because we've gotten past what we were taught when we were kids, and we overcame that propaganda that we went through. But there's a whole wing of the atheist movement. That is more virulently anti-Muslim than almost any other subset in this country. Any sense of what happened there? That's that's really interesting, actually. Um, I had not come across that in my own research, so that's that's really interesting um, for us. It's actually found to be those those who are the most religious and who identify as born again are the most resentful towards Muslims in the data that we have. Um, so it's it's quite interesting that you you raise this. Um, yeah, it's not something I've come across at all, but definitely something to pay attention. Yeah, there's, so there's there's two elements of that. One is uh, this ideology they put out there that all the religions are bad, but Islam is the worst. Uh, because their text is violent, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And Jake, why won't you admit Islam is the worst? Because it isn't, even Sam Harris, who can't stand Islam, admits the Old Testament is actually more violent than the Quran. Uh, but it's But part of that is, and last thing here is foreign policy. So how much is foreign policy driving? Because a lot of those new atheists are driven by the Palestinians are irredeemable. They must be occupied forever because they're violent Muslims. There's nothing we could do but cage them. So how much of that do you think drives this? I mean, this goes back to the old fashioned racism, right? I mean, look at the support for policies. They come from very much the beliefs that individual, these individuals are barbaric and savage and you know they need to be under a certain type of control. That narrative that you just spoke is very much old fashioned racism. It's biological inferiority. It's labeling people as inferior. And that belief is so powerful, at least in American politics, it does not surprise me that that drives foreign policy attitudes. Yep. All right, everybody check out the book, Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia. Azita, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. All right, we'll be back with another great interview for you in one minute. Welcome back to The Conversation, I'm your host Anna Kasparian. And we are about to have a fascinating conversation with a congressional candidate for New Jersey's 9th District. Zina Spesakis is the candidate that I'm referring to and it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks Anna, thanks for having me, it's great to be on. So you have a fascinating story because of where you come from. You have an immigrant part of your history, but you also have this experience working in the belly of the beast, Wall Street. 
And when I look at your platform, it is incredibly progressive. Front and center, you wanna do something about climate change and you wanna take drastic measures in order to combat climate change. But you're also a huge supporter of Medicare for all. So I wanna get into all of that. But first, let's start with your history. Talk about your family's history as immigrants here in the United States and what encouraged you to run for Congress. Sure, yeah, well, my parents were from Greece. I'm a first generation immigrant here and I'd like to tell the story that I actually didn't wind up, I didn't speak any English entering school. We spoke Greek at home and when I entered kindergartens when I first started learning English, you know, my parents, when I was younger, typical immigrant story would wake up before I got up to go work, would come back home after I went to bed. So I, you know, a lot of my childhood was, uh, spent with my grandmother who raised my my sister and uh, and and me uh, for a large part of it. So we saw a lot of hard work. We saw a lot of sacrifice growing up. Uh, we saw I saw two parents who you know a lot of, a lot of first generation immigrants tend to be conservative. Mine were probably more on the progressive liberal side. Uh, they were especially cultural uh, socially, um, you know. And for me, it was just you know, that's how you you get anywhere. Yeah, this is how you get the American dream. You work hard. You know, you try to educate yourself. My mother really stressed important the importance of education. I was lucky enough to get into Stuyvesant High School in New York City, and that really helped me get into a really good college, which kind of you know it helped me in a lot of ways. So definitely, uh, yeah. I yeah. mean, our, our stories are are pretty similar in that I also didn't speak a word of English when I entered oh. kindergarten, and I remember being like <laughs> yeah. deeply ashamed of that. Um, and so I would wake up extra early to watch Sesame Street and learn English. Uh, but it yeah. it is incredible how you. Uh, pers- you know, you just fight through it. And I love the fact that you're fighting for some of the big issues in America today, in the world today. And so front and center, as I mentioned earlier, is your battle to combat climate change. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, just to put it in a little bit of context, you know, I had I work in clean energy, and I'm, I'm I've also been an environmental activist for years. And I thought I was doing my part with respect to the climate crisis. And I say. Crisis because it is that at this point. Um, I have two young children, so for me, it, you know, it's real skin in the game. Um, but when I read the UN's IPCC report last fall, and it told us that we only have about 12 years to really do anything about it, uh, and you know, cut our emissions by about half uh, is what it said. Otherwise, we face apocalyptic outcomes. Um, you know, that terrified me, and not because we only had you know 12 or 11 years, but I also study the science. Um, and every single climate model that I've ever analyzed has always overestimated the amount of time we have in which to react. So that 12 years for me was was more more like five or six, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the urgency was there. And you know, I I live in a blue district. I'd voted Democrat for years, you know, sort of tick 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 down the line in New Jersey. And and then I just sort of woke up one day and I said, you know, what has Pat, what has my uh, opponent, Bill Pascrell, really done as far as leadership? Because it's not only it's. You, it's not only just voting for things, and even his record voting for climate isn't that great anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also showing vocal leadership because you you are dealing with a bunch of like climate deniers on the other side who are swaying the conversation. So it's incumbent upon us, upon us as Democrats to really pull that back to where it's supposed to be to really lean on the science. So I call these folks, you know, a lot of these establishment folks, climate delayers. And mm-hmm. and quite honestly, Anna, in my book, a climate delayer might, is worse than the climate denier because at least with a climate denier, you know what you're getting. Yes. You know what you're getting. 
a climate delayer, you assume that if you're voting for them every two years, that they're actually trying to work on the problem. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, you know, I get asked, what can we do? What can we do to reverse this? I said, I have to be honest with you, we can't reverse it right now. We are at the point where the best we can do, the best we can do is slow it the hell down um, uh, in order to give our children a chance to, you know, start addressing it. Because right now, the climate emergency has become an intergenerational issue for the world. Yes. And that means that means it isn't an election cycle thing. We have to stop thinking the you know short term two years. We have to start thinking generationally. How are we going to design our, our society so that it deals with this? You know, forget forget the extinctions that we've already seen. Those animals, those plants are not coming back. Those insects are not coming back, but at least we can slow it down uh, and try to reverse it um, you know, over over centuries, quite honestly, right now. So you're taking on the Democratic establishment, which is yeah. not a small undertaking. And uh, I've seen from personal experience how incredibly vicious the Democratic establishment can be. Have you uh, experienced any of that pushback, to put it lightly? Uh, you know, not quite yet. Um, we will be challenging uh, Bill Pasquale to a uh, debate next year, and we hope that he, you know, shows up. He's never really debated anybody in our district. I haven't, you know, I tell folks, you know, I spent I spent almost two decades on Wall Street dealing dealing with some of the you know greediest. In most intelligent people on the planet, and mm -hmm. I feel I feel that sort of has hardened me to whatever they might be able to throw my way uh, here in New Jersey. I understand their tactics, I understand their tricks, I understand how in bed the Democratic machine is in here is here with respect to how ballot placement and how that affects uh, you know outcomes. But this is a presidential year. Uh, we are, you know, we're going to be reaching out to every single voter we can uh, and make sure that people understand that this election cycle, they will have a choice, a real progressive choice. Uh, because we, you know, I think everybody would agree that free and fair elections is what we want. And that's what we're going to educate everybody on. So, so in your bio, uh, you write, business is a world I've always been very comfortable in, having earned a BA in economics and government from Cornell and an MBA in finance and business economics and MA in international relations from the University of Chicago. I spent nearly two decades on Wall Street, at one point working as managing director at Allianz Global Investors. So talk to me about that experience and how you, in my opinion, progress to where you are today. Because that is a very <laughs> different world from what you're talking about in your campaign. Yeah, that is a very different world. It's kind of, I'm not the, on paper at least, I don't scream progressive. Um, you know, I kind of, I kind of have my mom to thank for, uh, you know, for my progressive tendencies. Uh, I, if, if you, if you will, you know, she really taught me the importance of caring for others, and it's we're kind of, we're all in this together. Um, you know, she taught me the importance to be self, uh, the importance of being selfless. Um, you know, I, I did spend an enormous amount of time getting all these fancy MBAs from the top schools and spending all this time on Wall Street building and operating companies, and I think that gives me a really good insight into what exactly is wrong, not only that, but also how to dismantle it and rebuild it so that it works for people instead of uh, profits. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd like to tell folks I'm the I'm the progressive you want because I know how to take it apart uh, and rebuild it back up uh, so that it functions for everybody. Um, I know where the levers are. So in an op-ed for the Star Ledger, you wrote a piece defending Medicare for all. It's titled, a congressional candidate makes an argument for Medicare for all. So look, I am 
always skeptical of candidates who say they support Medicare for all because it's a, it's a popular proposal. And then they'll turn around and say, well, I also support Medicare choice. So what do you feel about the public option? Are you willing to compromise on Medicare for all in any way? Not at all. Actually, my Medicare for all uh, platform probably is almost is identical to uh, Bernie Sanders, for example, or mm-hmm. uh, Pramila, Pramila Jayapal. Um, our system right now is broken. Um, you have perverse economic incentives set up in pharmaceuticals and in health insurance. It is not working for people. There, we have 28 million uninsured. The only way we can get this done uh, is if we have a, just Medicare for all. Popular, you know, public options and all these fancy tweaks and stuff like that. There's just, you know, I don't know who these candidates are trying to appeal to. Perhaps they're donors, but um, you know, for me, if it's not Medicare for all, it's not going to function properly. And that's a big contrast between myself and Bill Pascrell, who's taken over 1.1 million dollars from big pharma and insurance companies just in corporate contributions. Uh, so he's not going to uh, propose uh, uh, support this. And parts of our district here in New Jersey have the highest uninsured rates in the entire state. So it's, uh, you know, we can't serve, we can't service our constituents unless we, uh, unless we um, really attack the structure of the healthcare industry. And right now the, the, the way it's set up, the incentives are perverse. You make money if you ration care um, and if you increase premiums, that is backwards. Um, that's backwards yeah. to any other uh, um, country, uh, developed country as well. So, so let's talk a little bit about strategy because you're right on the issues. I personally agree with you on a lot of your uh, positions, but fighting for these positions is a completely different issue. So, how do you propose uh, making these proposals become a reality? Well, there's a there's a few things actually there. Um, I think um, you know it's kind of sort of strategically, if you think about it, it's interesting. It's very interesting to me that a lot of the primary challengers around this country happen to also be Bernie. The majority of them have to be uh, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders sort of uh, De- Bernie Sanders and Democrats is what I call them. Mm-hmm. You know, they believe in uh, you know in Bernie's message uh, and in his uh, character. Quite honestly, um, I think we need to get uh, a critical mass of progressives in Congress, not just myself, but you know maybe uh, fo- other folks for for example from uh, the brand new Congress slate which I'm on uh, this year. Uh, we need to get a critical mass in there. That's one thing. The second thing is to be highly highly vocal about it. You know, uh, a lot of I'll give you an example. You know, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think one of the biggest things that she has done, one of the most positive things she has done, is she has changed the um, conversation mm-hmm. on the climate emergency. You know, prior to her. You know, people were scared to talk about it. It was, right. it was, it was, it was hilarious to me. I'm like, why? Um, but I think as as leaders, we have to be very vocal about it, and we need to be vocal about it, um, even if it's not politically convenient. Because quite not, this is life or death for people who we represent. We can't, you know, we can't, we cannot be vocal about it. So there's, you know, sort of a several pronged attack um, on how to uh, on how to get this done. But I think a lot of it is if we have strong leaders who are very vocal about it. Um, you know, even a little bit of airtime starts swaying people because of what the Republican Party has done to great effect, I think, over the last couple of decades, um, you know, has been to pull the conversation over to the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of a sudden, what we consider center now 
I'm old enough to remember what is considered centrist right now was Repu- was moderate Republican in the early uh, 1990s. Definitely, uh, I just I just aged myself. <laughs> no, no, I mean yeah. you're you're absolutely right about that. Um, so the Overton window has certainly shifted uh, to the right considerably, and and I think you're absolutely right about uh, the action that we need to take in Congress. I, I love uh, candidates who are primarying uh, centrist Democrats, and we need to fight for them. We need to get them elected into Congress. For anyone watching this interview. If you're interested in supporting Xena, just go to xenaforcongress.com. You can also donate by going to xenaforcongress.com slash donate. And you can volunteer by going to xenaforcongress.com slash volunteer. Xena, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Anna. All right, have a good one. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you for watching TYT, and we will see you in the new year.